This is the Relevant Podcast. It's episode 967, and this is the Relevant Podcast. Here in Orlando, I'm your host, Cameron Strang, and joining me from Loverland, Virginia, Jesse Carey. Hello, hello. From Austin, Texas, author, speaker, podcaster, Jamie Ivey. Hey, guys. And from Nashville, Tennessee, artist, producer, and mogul, Derek Miner. What up, dog? Uh, we have a great show in store for you today. Coming up later, Devon Franklin joins us. Uh, we also have a very special What's Jesse thinking at the end of the show. You don't want to miss it. But Devon Franklin, man, this dude is making moves in Hollywood right now. It, this guy's... And, and I'll say this. Uh, he seems very successful in, in his Hollywood pursuits. But if it yeah. didn't work out... He can go into sports coaching instantly and be the greatest coach in any sport, even if he has no knowledge of that sport, just because he's a very inspirational person. Like, he would make you want to go out there and just play as hard as you can. I met him one time, and I interviewed him at Catalyst, like, backstage back in the day. I was in the room. I was in the I, corner. I could have oh. run through walls after that interview. Like, if you listen to Jesse's interview with Devon Franklin, Jesse is so revved up. During the interview, he's going, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, man, that's right. Ooh, yeah. Like, he's at church. Jesse was at church talking back to the preacher. Devon it, Franklin was revving him it up. Was, it was motivational, inspirational, rolled in the one. I'm glad to see him on the pod. I'm glad to see him making Hollywood moves. But uh, <laughs> like I said, if he ever wanted to go into any sort of coaching, um, you know, I, I think he'd be very successful in whatever his pursuits are. So, or he could just make an app. He could just make an app where he just does inspirational things and you could, Jesse, you could have him in your ears every yeah, morning when you wake like up. A, a big meeting or, or, or yes. something. God, has, or, God yeah. has created you for this moment. There is nothing yes. that you yes. can't do today. <laughs> he who is in you is world. greater than he who is in the world. Let's go, Jesse. Like, it's very personalized. Well, listen, yeah. I hope y'all I hope y'all have watched the Golden State versus the Memphis Grizzlies because John Morant, mm-hmm. I'm about to get a John Morant jersey because he is going crazy. Like, he has went crazy. That dude... He's phenomenal, but I'm sorry. I just I just had to proclaim my love because I lived in Memphis for like three or four years. I love the city of Memphis. Like Memphis has a special place in my heart, and I just had to proclaim my love for for John Morant. He's doing crazy stuff down there. I'll say I'll say even for people who aren't basketball fans, you know the Michael Scott quote where he talks about sometimes he starts talking and he doesn't know where the sentence is going, and he just hopes that the thought <laughs> finds itself along the way. When David Wallace asks him what his secret to success, yeah. he's like, don't ever, under any circumstances, ever do anything <laughs> to anyone. And then Michael explains that, I just start talking, and hopefully I find myself. That's how John Moran played <laughs> basketball, except he's running 100 <laughs> miles an hour, and he jumps in the air in, in front of five people, and you know he has no plan when he leaves his feet. It's At like, all. I'm going to feel figure this out in midair and I might do a 360 and dunk it or I might do some weird around the back finger roll and fall flat on my back but let's just see what happens and he's been doing it the entire playoffs and it is wildly entertaining basketball it's literally how he gets 60% of his points it's like the whole team is like he's going to shoot a layup let's get under the goal and he does some crazy thing and throws it behind his head and it goes in. So yeah, yeah. I hope y'all are watching. Yeah, it's fun. It's the best time of the year. Basketball. Players. Okay, well, because I don't watch Thanks. this, just tell me who's going to be in the final. Because I'll watch the final two. 
but I don't have time for all this mess. Who's going to be there? Y'all tell me. Who do you think? By this mess, you mean the playoffs. Yeah, I don't watch all the playoffs. I just watch the last seven or whatever. Who's going to be there? Cameron, you to me, you're the basketball analyst. I, I I don't know, man. It seems these are some really, really, really good games. I think it's anybody's guess, to be honest. I, I think it's wide open, which is why this is a really exciting playoffs because everybody really does have a shot right now. Right, I'm going to start watching. Loud. It's really yeah, interesting. Yeah. It's not like years past where it was like inevitable that LeBron's team would take on this. Uh, you know, it, nah, nah, this, this is different. wide okay. open. It's fun. A new generation's coming up right now. It's It's fun to see. Yep. All right, we'll move the show along. Stay tuned up next. It's Slices. Never been Listening to Totally Enormous Extinct Dinosaurs. That is the name of the band. The song is Crosswalk. Season four of The Chosen is in theaters now, and the reviews that count are in. Amazing. Did not disappoint. Flurry of emotions. It was powerful, heartbreaking, uplifting. You have got to come and see it. It is a message for everybody. I highly recommend that you come out and see The Chosen season four. Episodes one through three of The Chosen season four are in theaters till February 14th. So visit thechosenriseup.com and get your tickets now. That's thechosenriseup.com for tickets today. Okay, it's time for Slices. All right, what do you have, Jesse? All right, so I ran across the story actually on a couple websites and um, mostly science-related websites. And it just got me really questioning, has MIT... Like the, the one of I, I feel like largely regarded as one of the world's premier engineering and technology and science institutions. Have they just run out of things to study? And, <laughs> and I've said this before, but I mean, we're coming out of a pandemic. Mm-hmm. We have like unidentified flying objects zipping around. There's a lot of stuff to unpack happening with science right now. Right. Sure. Like, yeah. we, we should be thinking about a lot of stuff. Well, I think for cancer, maybe. You know? yeah, yeah, exactly. There's diseases to be cured. Yeah. I, I, Pandemics. COVID. Yeah. 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 Clean technology. Like, mm-hmm. there's a lot of problems we could be solving. Mm-hmm. But yet, uh, this is the, one of their, their students' uh, uh, big projects that is getting um, uh, attention right now. It's in the field of Oreoology. And they've actually <laughs> created an Oreo meter for this. And they are trying to solve. This is the problem they're trying to solve for humanity. Not global warming. <laughs> not cures for diseases, not, yeah. uh, you know, vaccinating for the next uh, uh, global pandemic. Uh, they want to determine if it's actually possible to separate an Oreo with the cream, even on both sides of the cookie. Oh, okay? my gosh. Come yeah. on. No. This is real. This is true. This is true. And they've created a device with with these elaborate 3D printers called an Oreoometer. And the idea is that they can put an Oreo into this device. And you can actually watch a YouTube video and see the device. Uh, but they put an Oreo in there, and it turns it with exact precision uh, to know if it's even possible to, when you turn the Oreo, to have the cream come off on equally on both sides. Now, they haven't been able to do that yet, but they're looking at... Uh, they're looking at different solutions they did find a couple interesting things which is old boxes of oreo 
like they've, they, it seems like Oreos changed the formula because they use old boxes of Oreos and it was possible to get a little bit, um, it, it, uh, you know, a little bit more even. The newer ones, they're basically breaking off and, and you're getting most of the, the cream on one side. Now, that seems not very useful at all. And what about, so, what about an Oreo guillotine where you just stick the Oreo in a slot and then a little like almost exacto knife type thing goes and like that, cuts it in half, boom. That that seems like a a, a much uh, simpler solution than this elaborate weighted device that has a it's like know, a nutcracker for walnuts. You, know, but you have a little Oreo opener. But like, I love there's a site uh, called Hackster that interviewed some of the scientists working on this problem, and you know we're asking them. You can tell they're teeing it up. Like, all right, well, tell us what you learned, and they're like, well, don't turn them too fast. You got to go nice and slow because when you turn, uh-huh. well, it's like, well, obviously, I didn't need an MIT scientist to tell me to, <laughs> to turn it de- more delicately to try to get an even break. But then you could tell that my favorite part of this interview was that the scientist was like just trying to figure out a way to, to make this seem like credible research. This is an actual quote. So, and I'm going to read it in the voice of how I, how I think they, they, <laughs> at the end of the interview, they were like, I got to come up with something here because this seems like a massive waste of time and money. If I, so this is an actual quote. I'm going to read it in the voice that I think the person, the scientist actually spoken. Mm-hmm. So this new understanding can help me better. Uh, design ink when I'm trying to prevent uh, a print flexible electronics from slur from a slurry of carbon nanotubes because they deform in almost exactly the same way. Wow. So what? it's very useful. Like at that point, they're just string nanotubes. It'll help me understand nanotubes. I love that. They're like scrambling at the end of the interview to justify their research. It doesn't matter. You're trying to break Oreos evenly. Don't try to justify it. We know you're just goofing there and you've got all this attention from from science websites. But MIT, we got real problems here. Did it talk about any of their findings? Like, does the temperature of the cream matter? Like, the warmer it is, the looser it is, so therefore it's easier to break. If it's colder, it's more rigid. I mean, are it, did they tell us anything? They 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 said turn it more turn it slower and you're more. I'm like, well, of course. It's like you're telling me I shouldn't just rip right through it. I don't need a, like some highly gauged device designed by MIT engineers to tell me delicates a little bit better than just manhandling a, a sleeve of Oreos to try. You I know. need to get in on this science racket, y'all. I need to get in <laughs> on some like like I need to get in. Somebody needs to pay me to figure something out. Like, you know, I don't they know. Just, they just need to like, bring a mom in, a mom in who has several kids. And she's trying yeah. to give them equal amount of Oreo. And she's yeah. going to be able to twist that thing so good that they each get a side with the adequate amount of filling inside of it. Exactly. Because when, Jamie, was the last time, when was the last time y'all had an Oreo? I don't eat Oreos, but I know Jesse does. I had an Oreo last week. Two days ago. Two days ago. I had an Oreo last week. Yeah, the Oreos is fire. I I had a feeling. I haven't had one in 20 years. When when you say an Oreo, you wouldn't mean like nine. It was two two nights ago. Whatever night Better Call Saul was on, I was snacking while I was watching. Oreos. Y'all don't like Oreos? Do you open them up? No, I don't like them. Do you open them up, Jesse? No, I don't open them up. I go go double stuff or mega stuff for one. Do you open them up, Derek? I dip them. Nah, I'm 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 dipping and I'm oh. eating it. I'm eating it straight. I, I'm really? not doing all that opening and stuff. Yeah, that yeah. I don't do all, that's not how it was made. It was made <laughs> the, the 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 like a yeah. sandwich. You know what I'm saying? So I, I'm dude, gonna eat that. In the Oreo like a, commercials, like they have. I don't care what they doing in the commercials. That's not how whoever invented Oreos uh-huh. wanted it to be ate Thank like you. a sandwich. 
And I'm going to eat it like a sandwich. That's <laughs> Which how means this whole it. scientific thing is dumb because we don't need it. Yeah. Who cares? Right. Exactly. We it like a Bob sandwich. Oreo designed <laughs> this specifically to be consumed as a sandwich. As a sandwich. MIT, yeah. leave it alone. Leave it alone. Leave you it alone. have to think about the creator's intent. You right. don't yeah. mess with the creator's intent. Come on, Quit MIT. Quit putting raisins in the potato salad. That's what y'all doing. <laughs> Quit putting raisins in the potato salad. It was meant to be made like a sandwich. We're going to dunk it. You dunk, let it get a little soggy, and then you eat it. That's how Thank you do you. it. Thank you. That's my whole point. Who's funding this research? Okay. So, MIT so, costs a fortune to go to. This is where they've run out of stuff. They've just <laughs> run out up there. Man, I, I need them to run out of stuff and fund one of my inventions. Jesse, come up with an invention so we can go get some money from MIT, bro. Like, I know you got something in that head of yours that could we could get funded. I got like six Oreo inventions <laughs> alone, okay? Hey. hey, here's another lane that you guys can start messing with is obviously you're talking about dunking Oreos in a, in a glass of milk, right? I mean, it's... Right, right. Okay, well, the, on, the only other thing that milk is like, you have to have milk is cereal, right? A cereal bowl, yeah. you got to put your milk in it. Well, okay. Tropicana Orange Juice said there's an opportunity here to disrupt status quo and if Tropicana you, it came out a day ago Tropicana is launching a cereal that you are meant to eat with orange juice instead no, of milk no, you no. pour orange juice into the cereal no. bowl you that put so raisins gross. in the potato <laughs> salad it's so gross it's no I'm just no. saying like there's that's an opportunity let's just think about things that yeah. are common and that we can just disrupt that's <laughs> your opportunity blue yeah. ocean blue sky we gotta go where there's no competition no, you know bro. Orange yeah. juice cereal, man. All the sociopaths nah. will love it. It's, it's, it's an abomination. We live in a sick, sick country. That orange juice companies are making some kind of weird cereal. No, oh it's my gosh. We need to go back to traditional values in this country because this has gone too far. Hey. So here's a question: Do you, when you drink the when you drink? Because you know I drink the cereal milk. Right, I like of course cereal milk. So. Do you drink the cereal? Hey, orange I just say all the links. Clumps? It's called Tropicana Crunch. It's honey almond cereal made for OJ. You eat the cereal, then you drink whatever's left over. Look at it. <laughs> oh, I see oh, it. Bro. Yeah. Yeah. It's a real thing. Ain't no it's a way, real thing. man. Yeah. Stop doing this. Here's Why the problem. When this? we Americans travel to other countries, they always talk about the crazy things that we do. And now they're going to be like, and you guys now eat cereal with your orange juice. What is yeah. wrong with you, know you guys? That, you know that metallic thing? Like, if you ever had cereal and it's like you have drinking out of a metal cup or something like that or a uh-huh. water bottle that's metal, it just doesn't taste right. Yeah. You eat right. cereal. Right. with a metal spoon like you're just oh, putting that gosh. metal orange juice metallic acidic yeah Ugh. no thanks i'm good i'm gonna all pass. right all right what do I you pass. have jamie okay another research study here we go so here Yay. in texas here in texas we have beaches you guys know this we're on the we're on the gulf here um and there is a group of researchers who they work with a 40 mile stretch of of Texas beach twice a week, but they've been using social media to document some of their weird discoveries. And by weird dozens of creepy dolls are coming up on to the beach. Okay. So you may wonder why are all these dolls coming up onto this beach? Well, the truth is, is that um, they have this, the, the beach here in Texas, we actually get the most washed up trash on the Gulf because of something with the loop and the Yucatan Peninsula. It doesn't matter. Oh, but, I thought you were talking about the people. Uh, Cameron. <laughs> 
have the trashy beach. No, go over to what is that beach in Florida where they what? do the race cars? Uh, Daytona. Oh, Daytona. No. Panama <laughs> City. Oh yeah, yeah man. Panama City, the Redneck Riviera. Yeah. yeah. The, la- the last time, the one and only time I went to the beach there, which the ratio. It was it was somewhere up in the Daytona area, but the ratio of people wearing jeans in the water to people wearing standard bathing suits was shockingly even. It was shy. There was a lot of people hey. just straight up in street clothes hey. walking into the ocean. But here's the, here's the reason why. Here's the reason why. There's Daytona is like an hour from Orlando, so what you have up there is like, and the you know people family trip to Orlando. And then they're like, hey, let's go see Daytona 500. Let's go see Daytona, like a little tourist day. They, they're they here for tourism. They weren't doing a beach day. So the family spontaneously decides to get out, see the ocean. They're in their normal clothes. And then it, one thing leads to another. That, no, you know I've been on a spontaneous beach trip where I didn't plan on going to the beach. And I did not get in the water because I did not have a swimsuit on. And so that is not a good excuse for these people in their jeans. Yeah, but you're not a dad. A dad's going to be like, I can just, you know, my jeans. Play with the the off. I'm good. I'm a, I'm a dad. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm a dad. And I ain't never got in no body of water with no jeans on. I've gone to beaches up and down the East Coast. Yeah. If you go far, far, far enough down in Florida, you get people with jeans on the beach. You go far enough up to New Jersey, you got people, you got women with stiletto heels on the beach. That's the spectrum, okay? Of 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 inappropriate dress. It's it. The more northern you go. It gets way too dressy for the beach, and the more southern, it gets way too casual. That's what I <laughs> do. All the way down when you get to the bottom of Florida, and they it's don't a have bunch of on. naked old people. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. exactly right. I think my yeah, I think my, my theory holds up here. Yeah, it's actually true. Uh, it's okay, actually. so they've just been finding a lot of creepy dolls. I think this is kind of crazy. They post them on Facebook, and they said the creepiest ones are the ones that have lost all their hair. I mean, there's pictures on here, and they look like you would find this. It was from a scary movie is what it looks like. But they did say this. They said the first one we had we found was uh, the head of a sex doll, but they didn't know that's what it was. What? And so that. Yeah. Yeah. So they posted it on their Facebook page and they didn't know that's what it was. Uh, and so that was kind of funny for them. But these researchers, they're out here doing their job and they just keep finding crazy dolls that have washed up. Onto the well, Texas Gulf Coast. It's that plastic trash island that yep. like, mm. the plastic dolls don't. Decompose and so they wash up eventually on yep. Gulf, Down Gulf in Puerto Shore, Texas. Yep. Yep. Wow. Interesting. All right. What do you have, Derek? Well, look, um, in Nashville, I don't know if y'all know this, but I I mean, this place has been booming like crazy. The pandemic has set it off. It feels like everybody from California is literally moving here. No, they were coming to Austin, is where they're coming. Man, you can't buy a house in Nashville. For it for market value, you if you don't come with fifty thousand over asking, you just might as well don't even put an offer in. Like it's That's housing market is too. hot. Well, I don't know if it's like this in Virginia, but a house just sold in Virginia for eight hundred and five thousand dollars, and it has a squatter in the basement. Does the squatter come with the house? Yes. yes. I, I, actually, yes. They, I, I actually read, I've been following this one pretty closely. This yeah, is, me too. This I, is found, I found the story this in the team a few days me. ago. Yeah, this you, is know, you know, she's come forward, the squatter. Yeah. Has Did come she? forward. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. And uh, evident, I'm probably going to butcher the story. 
But evidently, uh, she was like a house cleaner or something, uh-huh. and uh-huh. the the resident who lived in the house was elderly, and assin- according according to her, essentially invited her to live in the basement and kind of serve as like a caretaker. But right. it sounds like a still kind of a murky legal residency situation. I'm not disparaging her or or the the former homeowner, but it certainly seems like an unconventional stipulation for a real estate deal. Well, that's the crazy part because the the real estate agent is saying, hey, we're selling this house for $805,000, but the basement is off limits. Like so, yeah, the basement's off limits. And the law protects the squatter. By a person. So, yeah, they well, the thing is, squatters rights, you have to be in a place for 15 years or more. So I but the family doesn't have the money to get to start the process to get the lady out. So they're just like, we're just going to sell the house and whoever buys it is going to have to deal with it. So I'm assuming there's a way they can get her out. Seems that it's going to be a costly way. But so you buying a house for eight hundred and five thousand and it's a thirty five hundred square foot house. So it's a pretty decent sized house. But you're buying it for thirty five hundred and you got to deal with a squatter. So here's the deal. She has to leave at some point. Oh, it's sold. It's sold. 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 They bought it. Yeah, they bought it. Somebody bought it. So she has to leave at some point. She has to go to the grocery store. New owners go down there, change the locks. She can't get back in. It's your house. What's she going to do? That's it. And then you can have a company come get all of her stuff out, put it in the lawn. Can yeah. You can kick that, somebody though? out. Hmm? You can legally do that? I'm not saying legally. I'm just saying you just do it. <laughs> I don't understand why legally someone can be in your house without you inviting them in. Yeah. It's a it's a loophole. The same thing happened yeah. during the pandemic with a lot of people who stopped paying stuff. rent yeah. and stuff like that. And like in certain states have very squatter friendly rules that the landlords could not kick them out and stuff. And, you know, wow. at some point it goes from just delinquency to squatter rights. It's yeah. Yeah. There was a, um, a story here in, in uh, Nashville or in, I don't know if it was Nashville, but it was Tennessee. And there was a house that was, and this was during, this was during when the housing market was struggling. So it was a, it was definitely a buyer's market. And the house had not been, it's, it's been up for sale for a while. And a guy just literally went into the house, moved in. And I guess people didn't know what was going on and they couldn't kick him out. He claimed squatters rights. So there was mm-hmm. this big thing. Uh, so, yeah. If you, I, watch, if you watch the movie, The Big Short, the talking about yeah. the housing crash in that era, like in, yeah. in, in Florida, in Miami, especially where they just overbuilt yeah. families just started moving into all these empty developments and empty houses and just said, do what you got to do. But it took years before they could get them to leave. And they had a free house for a few years. Yeah. So a lot of families did that. That's crazy. All right. Well, there's a lot more where that came from. Uh, these types of stories, we pepper them out throughout, pepper them throughout the day on relevantmagazine.com. So go check that out as well. All right. Stay tuned up next. Devon Franklin joins us. Let's pretend we're floating over everyone. Let's forget the days of whole millennium Time is precious, can't you see we're all having fun One more reckless night with Don Perignon You're listening to Toro y Moi in the Matson 2. The song is Millennium. Well, Relevant has a lot happening this year, and we don't want you to miss a thing. 
Make sure to sign up for our newsletter right there on the front page at relevantmagazine.com and we'll send you our top five trending stories sent to your inbox every weekday. We'll also send you a weekly uh, podcast newsletter with the latest episodes, some uh, fan extras, and first peeks at the new shows that we're going to be rolling out throughout this year. Make sure to sign up. It's the best way to keep in touch with everything we got going on. Well, our guest today is Devon Franklin. He's a speaker, author, producer of films like Miracles from Heaven and Heaven is for Real. He recently released his new book, It Takes a Woman, which is a personal memoir and an ode to his mother and aunts who raised him. Devon sat down with our very own Tyler Huckabee to discuss how his life has changed in recent years and what his next move is. Here's our conversation with Devon Franklin. So something you hear a lot these days is <laughs> we all know how much TV there is and, and how much um, there's too many TV shows out there. and We've got an overload. As somebody who's behind a lot of that TV, uh, how do you make sure that the shows that you're behind stand out from the pack? Yeah, you, honestly, uh, it's about good storytelling. I mean, at the end of the yeah. day, just like, you know, no matter what, even even in a very competitive lands- landscape, uh, great stories never go out of store. No, never go out of fashion. You know, they're always in style. People want them. They connect generations. They are the things that families, you know, will sit in front of the TV and watch or stream on whatever device they have. So uh, I can't control, you know, the marketing and when people watch. But what I can control is the quality of the storytelling that I produce. And so I really do my best to stay on top of that. And with a show like this and other shows that I'm a part of, it's just about telling great stories with great characters that people can connect to. And in my experience, when you do that, somehow or another, the audience will find it. All right. So let's talk about It Takes a Woman a little bit. This is a very interesting project, sort of an unusual, unique project. Uh, Can you tell me a little bit about what it is and, and why you decided to do it? Yeah, it's, it, you know, I'm so excited about this new audio book that I've done with Audible. Uh, it's an Audible original, so I've done it exclusively for them. It's available right now. It's called It Takes a Woman. And what it's about, it's really the most vulnerable I've ever been in terms of telling my own personal story, my family story. My father died when I was nine years old. Uh, when he was 36 years old, he had a heart attack. Uh, he was an alcoholic most of his life. And for in this project, you get a chance, the listener gets a chance to hear not only my version of those events, but also my mother and five of my great aunts. The oldest is 96, the youngest is 76. And as we start to unpack the tragedy of my father's death, our story evolves and you get a chance to hear how all of these women in my family swooped in to help save me and my older brother and younger brother in the in the light of the passing of my father. And so this mm-hmm. audio book, It Takes a Woman, is it's just one of the best things I think I've done because you get a chance to go with us on our journey. You get a chance to really hear how a family deals with tragedy and processes grief. And in the process, you get a lot of wisdom, encouragement. Um, people who've listened to the book already, they laugh, they cry. Uh, They are recommending it to their friends because, you know, I got a chance to talk to my mom and my great aunts about things we've never talked about before, let alone talked about in public. So the listener is hearing firsthand the emotion and the transparency and sometimes the pain that um, my mom and my aunts express as well as myself. So that's a long answer to your question, but that's that is that's what it takes a woman is. 
One of the tricky things when telling stories from your own life is knowing what to leave in and what to take out and how to sort of find a narrative that makes sense. As you started tackling your own story here, uh, what story, how did you decide what to include and what not to? Why did you, why did you decide to take this angle on it? Well, it's, it's going back to the scene of the crime. The, the whole idea behind It Takes a Woman is that, you know, being raised by these women taught me how to be a man. And so the idea of losing my father at nine years old was the catalyst that brought um, these women, I call them the village, that brought the village together. And so this was the right entry point for, you know, for me to start the story, because it's really where the story begins, you know, in terms of where, why it's the, the linchpin. Now, as you listen to it, the cool thing about this book is we go back to tell my family history about how we got to America because my great grandfather uh, immigrated from Jamaica. Um, we talk about my mother and why she was so close to the village growing up. So the, the death of my father, going back to the scene of the crime, felt like the right catalyst, not only for the story, but it's really what allowed these women to come into our lives in a, in a much more deliberate way. And from that jumping off point, we go back and we go forward as a way to tell the listener how we got here. You mentioned that there were some things that surprised you when you started going through this. Uh, what were those things? Um, you know, I wasn't expecting that they were still holding on to so much pain. Huh. Um, and I also wasn't expecting, you know, as I mentioned earlier, uh, my mother is 70 years old and my great aunts range from 76 to 96 and all their voices are featured. And this is the first time that they have had a chance to tell their story. So I wasn't expecting how the opportunity to tell their story would impact their life. Each one of them have told me that this project is one of the highlights of their life, mm -hmm. uh, doing it, speaking about it, uh, you know, doing the photo shoot, now doing press. And I wasn't expecting that giving them an opportunity to to express and to be heard would impact them in such a dynamic way. and. Mm -hmm. What I realized, you know, I think growing up, we always look at our parents or our elders as these kind of superhero like figures yeah. who, oh, yeah. who can do no wrong and don't do any wrong. And they're not even humanized. Right. It's almost like we growing up, we have a dehumanized point of view about uh, our parents or whomever our guardians may be. And doing this book, it really humanized my mother. It humanized uh, my perspective of my aunts because they expressed things to me that I had never heard before in a way that I never heard before. And the blessing and the benefit is that the listener gets to be a fly on the wall on these conversations. So everything the listener is going to hear when you listen to this new um, audible original book, It Takes a Woman, when you hear it, you're going to be it's not the, their responses and how they're woven in. It's not edited. This is their genuine response. It's not performed. They didn't perform. They just were speaking their truth. And to hear this transparency and the, and the, and the, the catharsis in that truth was very surprising. Listening to this, I'm kind of like, well, that sounds like a really interesting project, and and I might want to do it just for myself, even though Audible isn't, you know, obviously asking me to do anything like this. Uh, I think it'd be a good thing for all of us, those of us who can, to dig into our parents' stories a little bit more. Do you have any advice, having done it, for those of us who'd like to try to get to know our own parents and the people who raised us a little bit better? Yeah, you know what? I, I would just say in the in the world of you know smartphones. 
uh, you know, take out your phone, open up a voice note and start asking questions. Um, one of the things that dawned on me through this process is this. Throughout the course of our life, how many family gatherings do we have? More than we can count. <laughs> and, and, and what do we usually have to show for those gatherings? You know, memories of, you know, okay, getting together. We don't even remember what we ate. Don't even remember the games we played. Don't even remember what games we watched. But we say, oh, yeah, we spent time. But what did we spend the time doing? Here's my point. If you owned a home and in your backyard there was oil underneath the surface, but you never drilled for it, people would call you crazy. Why? Because you had all this wealth that you never went searching for. To me, being with our family and being with our elders and those who come before us and not asking questions about how they got there, not seeking answers about our family is the equivalent of having that oil in the backyard, but not drilling for it. So I would encourage anyone the next time you're together with your family. Yes, I'm not saying you shouldn't have fun, but take a few minutes Sit down with, with your aunt, your uncle, your grandmother, your grandfather. Say, hey, talk to me about this. Tell me your story. How did you get here? Why do we do this? You would be shocked at how much they have to say. Hmm. And a lot of times they don't always say it because they don't know that, they, that, that someone wants to hear it. And two, they may not even realize that there's a lot to say until they're asked the question. So sure. I would really sure. encourage you and anyone else, just start because you're going to learn so much more about yourself. You're going to learn about your family. And also you're going to get glimpses into where your future could go based upon where you come from in your history. That was Devon Franklin. All right, stay tuned up next. It's what's Jesse thinking. Every second that I wanna do the things I wanna do. I gotta tell myself to slow it down and try to keep it cool. I just gotta disconnect myself so I can see it through. Battle in my hand, then I just try to keep away from you. Every second that I wanna do the things I wanna do. Gotta tell myself to slow it down. You're listening to Kaku. Kaku? C U C O. I don't know how do you say that. Kaku? The song is caution. Okay, it's time for What's Jesse thinking? Huh? Jesse, we missed you last week, and I just thought you're laying in bed sick. Yep. You're thinking about a lot of stuff. Oh, and my so... mind's racing. Racing. <laughs> okay. So what are you thinking about this week? Mostly about Oreos, but uh, then I, you know, got out of my sick haze. And no, I was thinking this week, I, I went down a rabbit hole, which I frequently do, especially when I'm sick and I can't sleep. Um, and, you know, it, it kind of got me thinking about how and I don't even want to label it like, quote unquote, evangelicalism. But I would say like American Protestantism for, you know, at least my rate growing up ignored a lot of interesting but weird stuff in the Bible, like and just kind of focused on core gospel stuff, which is Jesus. fine. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, as I was, you know, kind of reading more about the conflict in Ukraine 
uh, and Russia between, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I kept coming across these stories that were referencing religious Christian ideas that are central to this conflict that I feel like a lot of Americans, particularly American Protestants, aren't all that familiar with. And the two that I want to dig into really quickly is the role of angels and the role of actual religious artifacts that mm. for you, the Ukrainians and the Russians have become very, very central to this conflict. But for a lot of even devoted Christians in America, th- neither of those topics were really discussed all that much in uh, church. Now, the first one I want to talk about is the role of religious objects in warfare throughout Christian history and even the Bible, because you guys heard about the ship that became very famous. It's called the Moskva. It was a Russian warship that uh, pulled up to this small island uh, during the initial days of the invasion, uh, and it was called Snake Island, and demanded that the Ukrainian soldiers on that island surrender. And that's the famous kind of quote where the Ukrainian soldier said, Ukrainian vessel, go bleep yourself or whatever. Um, A couple weeks ago, that ship sank in, in, in the middle of a battle. And part of a footnote of that story is that on board that ship was thought to be what is known as the true cross of Christ, a fragment of the the wooden cross that a lot of Orthodox Christians uh, in Europe believe was the actual cross that Christ was crucified on. A fragment of that was on board the ship that is now at the bottom of uh, of, of the ocean. Um, like the it was rep- on board in someone's personal possessions or it was like uh, a part of the government or how was it on board? Yeah, so it was on it was on board because it was given to basically the commander of the Black Sea Fleet okay. as almost a sort of religious weapon. Um, wow. Now, oh, wow. there, there like are... Like this will protect you sort of a thing? Yeah. Like, yeah. Like it, this this wasn't term. just like... A, you know, this the the Orthodox Church actually believed that this thing had spiritual power. And oh, wow. if you had a piece of the true cross of Christ with you, it would offer this sort of almost degree of invincibility. Dude, yeah. um, and well, Indiana Jones and in Last Crusade, the Holy Grail had the same sort of what, magical well, powers. Well, not only that, but the Ark of the Covenant was looked at at the time as the greatest weapon, warfare weapon on the face of the earth. Mm. I mean, you know, the the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament was actually a weapon of war, among other things. So, uh, you know, it had the right. mercy seat where God's presence sat, but it was brought to battle. Now, affixed to the side of the Ark of the Covenant was what's known as Aaron's rod. That's the rod mm. that if you read in the Old Testament, it th- Aaron was able to throw it down and it became a snake that snake. ate other snakes. Mm-hmm. When Aaron wanted to part the Red Sea, he had to use Aaron's rod. You know, it's that famous Moses. imagery. Or, or Moses. yeah, Moses, yeah, uses Aaron's rod to part the Red Sea. So we know there was something about this physical object that had some sort of physical power. So if you look, if you start reading back about the Ark of the Covenant and the power it had during warfare, you know, it it it's pretty, you know, there's some stories in the Old Testament that I feel like, are pretty interesting. For example, when the Philistines uh, stole the Ark of the Covenant temporarily, uh, Benjamin had to tell his father, Eli, a prophet at the time. So this is this is actually uh, from the book of 1 Samuel. I said this, when he mentioned the Ark of God, 
that the, he told his father that the Philistines had stolen it. This was the reaction of Eli. He fell backwards off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died. He was so mm. afraid that when the Ark of the Covenant fell into the enemy's hands, that one of the leading prophets fell over and literally broke his neck and died. That, that's how violent it was. Now, the Philistines ended up um, giving it back because when they brought it into their presence, uh, it, oh, their it, faces uh, melted. Yeah, they, they well, they it wasn't that far. The they were struck with tumors. The entire country was struck with these crazy tumors, and it actually operated as sort of this this weapon. Curse. When they yeah yeah when uh, the Israelites uh, uh, the walls of Jericho when they marched around and blew their trumpets and the walls of Jericho fell, they were carrying with them the Ark of the Covenant, uh, and a lot of you know so there's been this kind of thought that these kind of religious relics hold this kind of power and it's actually kind of a a an idea that's being pulled into this terrible conflict in Russia and Ukraine. Ukraine on the other hand is um you know their kind of uh, uh you know segment of Christianity has a high high emphasis on the role of angels and particularly the archangel Michael. All over there's a huge statue of of the archangel Michael in the city of Kiev. There are mm-hmm. uh, Michael, the Archangel Michael is on coins and relics throughout the country. Really? And that's crazy. One of the leading one of the leading Orthodox uh, uh, preacher uh, uh, priest in the country during the early days of the invasion. Prayed Let's go with this. preacher. Let's go with preacher. I like it. Orthodox preacher. Uh, <laughs> he prayed this for a lot of leaders and influential people. He said, today we pray, O Archangel Michael and all the powers of heaven fight for Ukraine. Cast down the devil who is attacking and killing us, bringing devastation and death. And when he, Michael actually shows up in the official Kiev city coat of arms, like his imagery is everywhere. Because when you look at the Bible, anytime the Israelites were going to battle, there are tons of references to how the archangel of Michael himself, uh, like killed 150,000 Assyrians, or that in the end times it'll be Michael who leads kind of these soldiers into battle. So, you know, a lot of religious leaders in Ukraine take this very literally, just like a lot of the Orthodox leaders in Russia seem to have a very literal interpretation of the role of these spiritual relics. I found all, obviously, I don't, I don't want to uh, diminish the tragedy. I have a yeah. question. I have a question about yeah. the Michael thing. Yeah. So I, as an adult, learned that the biblical angels, like the the way that they're described in the Bible, are basically these beasts covered in a million eyeballs, and they're terrifying to look at. And that's why when they appear to the shepherds, it's like, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, because they're so freaky and so crazy. They're not like these human-like figures that just float in the sky. So my thing is, if... That is more accurate that that true angels are these weird blob eyeball creatures. How does Michael, the blob eyeball creature, kill thousands of soldiers if he's just a bunch of eyeballs? Well, is- well, I, I think there are different types of like an archangel okay. is a kind of a different it, it, and this is biblical, but there are different sure. types like right. sort of like species of angels. There's right. seraphim and but the archangels, right. the That's implication right. are look like soldiers, human like yeah, and okay. they actually in in second Kings, it refers to Michael as the chief commander of God. And Got so it. Ukraine kind of interprets this very literally to the point where their priests are. And, and again, I'm not. I don't want to dig too much into the theology of it. Praying directly to Michael for help while Russia is 
putting fragments of what they believe is the actual cross of Christ in battleships. Like, I feel like these are really interesting topics, but I do feel like in Western Protestantism, particularly, it's ignored because it seems so weird. But th- these, this kind of stuff is littered throughout the Bible. It's just kind of our modern uh, emphasis doesn't really provide us with much opportunity to unpack it. But it's playing an increasingly central role in the battle uh, between Ukraine and Russia right now. One of the things that stood out to me early in the conflict that, sh- I mean, shocked me, and we reported this, was there was this big... Uh, in Russia, there was a big rally that Putin was at football, you know, football stadium, tens of thousands of people were there. And it was like essentially a MAGA rally, you know, like it was like very much mm-hmm. patriotism and rev people up and whatever. But what Putin said was talking about how this is they are, you know, basically engaging this conflict with Ukraine because it's God's will for mm-hmm. our Christian nation. And mm-hmm. he was evoking scripture and he was evoking all this religious purpose to the conflict, mm. which shocked me because in my understanding, communism is like communist China and it's not religious at all. But apparently in Russia, this Orthodox Christianity is very much ingrained in the political structure and stuff there, which, you know, again, as a naive American, I didn't know that. So it's becoming like a religious war of different factions of Christian Christian nationalism over there. It's just interesting. And like I said, it's, it, it is sort so of hard for a lot of Western Christians to relate to because, I mean, even through the Crusades, religious relics were part of battle. Like they believed that whoever possessed the, you know, sort of the, the, the most holy kind of relics or symbols of God would lead them in battle just like they did for the Israelites. There's a reason the Ark of the Covenant they brought to battle because they saw it as sort of this like the spiritual but also was... physical weapon. Yeah. And, and it had this mysterious wow. rod that had this power that I'm just saying like again there's there's a lot to unpack there but it's just not something that's frequently seems like it's frequently discussed in in kind of the modern American Mm -hmm. church well I I think it's because the modern American church relies so much on the the new covenant and the new testament and whatever that is like well God didn't need to we don't need to sacrifice to get his approval he doesn't live in the ark anymore The, the the veil was torn separating God from man and so now we have direct access to the father so like I think we just kind of like say well those are neat little stories that's how the old version of people interacted with god but through jesus we have a totally different you know approach to spirituality mm-hmm. now you know what yeah. i mean like i i think that's probably why that we don't study the old way as much as we study the new way I don't yeah know. and and i certainly obviously i'm i certainly think there's validity to that approach but i also think you know uh, ignoring a huge chunk of the you know, kind of spiritual context of the Bible, or at least under, um, maybe not completely ignoring, but 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 not really unpacking it like other uh, kind of segments of modern Christian denominations do globally, I feel like limits our understanding of at least how to relate to that type of believer, even if, even if we don't necessarily see the same sort of value in emphasizing those stories. If other Christians do, I think there's value in understanding at least their perspective, because when a conflict like this breaks out and, the, and religion, particularly Christianity, plays such a central role, it kind of feels like we're all playing catch up, you know? Well, I think I, I honestly mm-hmm. feel like that's one of the that's a big issue with with us in the West as far as understanding what the scriptures are actually saying. Because if you just throw out all of the Old Testament 
spirituality, it's really hard to understand what's being communicated in the New Testament Mm -hmm. because that is the foundation Mm -hmm. of the New Testament. Like Mm -hmm. Christ came to his conclusions with the Old Testament, weird spirituality stuff to us and all. That's how he came to his conclusion. There was no New Testament. He wasn't reading Paul. Paul was reading the prophets. Yeshua mm-hmm. was reading the prophets and 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 the Torah. So I, I feel like, to be honest, I feel like that's one of the things that cripples American Christianity and understanding the culture and having an even deeper revelation to the scriptures because that scares us because a lot of us don't like that because it makes us uncomfy. It feels um, it feels uncomfortable. Uh, superstitious in a sense. Um, But that's, I mean, that's what the, the patriarchs of the scriptures believe. So I think at minimum, we should at least know what they meant when they were talking about angels and all of those different things for at, at, at minimum apologetics reasons. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, interesting. My two cents. I mean, the old Testament experience of God, the whole fear and trembling, Thing. I mean, think about the mm-hmm. temple, yeah. like the holy of holies, only blameless certain level of, you know, religious leader could even enter the holy of holies to commune with God. And they had to tie a rope around their ankle mm-hmm. because yeah. God would strike them dead if they were not clean. And they had to like pull the body out. And it's like, so when the Bible talks about fear and, you know, and coming to the Lord with fear, fear and trembling. I mean, it's like, it was a real thing. Like you're stepping into Mm -hmm. the temple going, I don't know if I'm going to make it out, you know, like, yeah. Yeah. And it's like to then understand new, like you're saying, Derek, to understand new Testament, like when Jesus talked about this, to understand the context of what he was even counter narrating, if anything else saying like, this is the new way, you know, not the old way, but to not know where we came from and what this was based on. Well, even when you say this is the new way, it's not, God is doing a totally different thing than what was happening in the Old Testament. He's talking about, no, he's like, yo, this is how the Most High intended for us to follow the scriptures. But, you know, over time, after being conquered and then, you know, Israel being reestablished and conquered and reestablished, those ways were lost. And what Yeshua did was follow the law and be an example to show us how to actually follow what it was meant to be intended for in the first place. At least that's where I've landed on it. It's like, it's not that it's not that the father was saying one thing and Jesus is saying something totally opposite and they're not together. It's like, nah, let me show y'all how to actually follow the law, right? Don't take the Sabbath and use it as a, uh, a, a weight around the neck of the people no, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That's the the benefit. If you don't understand the Old Testament, you don't know what that means, right? Because in the sense of the Sabbath was, if you look at how we were in, Israel was in Egypt and they never had a day off. The Sabbath is the most amazing thing in the world because it told the Israelis or told the the, uh, Hebrews that you're not just meant for work. You're meant to commune with me and you get an opportunity to have a break. If you don't understand that narrative in in the Old Testament, then the New Testament, the idea of Christ being the Sabbath, you won't understand rest. Like we Mm. we meet we meet a we, we have a 
deeper understanding of the New Testament when we dive into the Old Testament as much as we dive into the New. That's that's my perspective. At least that's what my experience has been, you know. And if you don't want to watch or read the New Testament, you can just watch Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Jesus. It's basically and all there. Basically all there, Indiana from my Jones. understanding. From my understanding. I think I think they get it right. I think, yeah. Close enough. Close enough. <laughs> I just keep going back, Jesse, to why they didn't grab the piece of the cross. Like, like was it was it in someone's pocket? Was it in a well, book? It, it was what, actually. Was it, was it in a it was drawer? Actually, uh, a drawer. Well, it, it well, it was <laughs> welded into a metal cross. So a splinter oh. of it was melded. And oh. and, they, and and to be fair, they don't know. I mean, the it seems like the 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 sinking of that vessel. The circumstances are murky, uh, you know, no pun intended there. Uh, yeah. but, but right now, Ukraine <laughs> is, claims they kind of hit it with like an anti-battleship drone device. Russia claims it was bad weather. We're not even sure how many people made it off the boat, how many people drowned. I see. And, but there yeah. is a degree of uncertainty about what happened to this splinter of what they call the true cross. It, it, who knows if it's, if it, you know, is attached to it in any way. But it's very unclear what happened okay. to it. But it is... You you know, thought of as an extremely precious artifact, which is why there's there seemed to be some degree of urgency of putting it onto this battleship before it, it embarks in what, you know, one side seems to believe is some sort of Dude, holy war. 2000 years later, there ain't no wood. I mean, that that thing rotted. <laughs> Come on. I am, I've been to Israel enough to know that nobody knows exactly where the tomb was. There's a That's couple a of different theories. Nobody That's knows exactly. It still makes for yeah. a really good I mean, story. Th- this was this was evidently uh, discovered by the Roman Emperor Constantine's mother, Empress Helena, in 1100. I mean, but again, who knows? Uh, but it, all I'm saying is an, it's an interesting um, kind of Christian footnote to a very tragic, uh, you know, conflict. But I do think, you know, it it's it isn't irrelevant to try to understand deeply held beliefs of other Christian denominations, especially if those denominations go to war with each other. You know, agreed. That's mm-hmm. that's a fact. Wonder what Devon Franklin fact. has to say about that. Bring him up. Bring him up. <laughs> he was in you. Is greater than he is in the world. Go out now. <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay. Well, that'll do it for. What's Jesse thinking? Oh. Huh? Well, before we wrap things up, I want to thank Devon Franklin for joining us today. Also, a few little updates. Uh, I mentioned Relevant Plus at the beginning of the show. Go find out more at relevantmagazine.com. It's our you know premium subscription tier, ad-free everything, enhanced everything. Uh, this podcast ad-free, released early. There's a lot of benefits. Go check out all the details and sign up at relevantmagazine.com. Just click on the Relevant Plus tab. Also, make sure you check out the spring digital issue of Relevant featuring Ryan Reynolds, Bob Goff, Shauna Nequist, some great artists, great influencers, great thinkers. Channing Tatum's in there. It's a great lineup. Uh, You can read the ad-supported version for free at relevantmagazine.com or you can get the ad-free enhanced experience by subscribing to Relevant Plus. Also, make sure at the site to check out our weekday devotional series, Deeper Walk. It's presented by Lumo. There's a morning devotional email you can get, or you can check it under the face section on our website each weekday. It is a great way to start your day. Also, if you like this show, tell people. Uh, You can rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you hear us. And don't forget to check out relevantmagazine.com. We have some job openings, and we're looking for some great people. All the details are there. Okay, 
On that note, we'll wrap it up. I'm Cameron Strang. I'm Jesse Gary. I'm Jamie Ivey. I'm Derek Miner. We'll see you next time. Have a great week, everyone. for listening to The Relevant Podcast. Check out our features, interviews, and news updates every day at relevantmagazine.com. And make sure to follow Relevant on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest. For more great podcasts, browse the shows on The Relevant Podcast Network, which you can find at our site. And while you're there, don't miss the all-new era of Relevant Magazine. A new issue releases every other month at relevantmagazine.com. Like six Oreo inventions alone, okay? Relevant Podcast Network. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up zero to one grams of net carbs, five to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.